Now, Luke 15 contains some very familiar things to you if you've uh, been in church at all most of your life or have been a Christian for any length of time. I'm sure you've heard uh, these parables or at least heard of them. Um, I want to talk to you just a little bit about what a parable is. A parable is a, uh, a story, the intent of which is to draw a comparison between the physical world, which you can readily discern, and the spiritual world, which is not so easily perceived. Uh, it helps us to see what we really can't see. It helps us to feel what might be difficult to feel. It helps us to know what we otherwise might not know. We know from Jesus Himself, too, that parables, uh, one of their intentions is to reveal hidden truths to those who have ears to hear it, those who are seeking after God, those who won't to hear from Him. It also hides truth from those who would have disdain for it. Uh, parables were used to uh, show people the true nature of God, and they were used to um, chastise and uh, bring judgment on uh, the Pharisees and the uh, religious leaders. Parables have the uh, ability to... Uh, catch the mind and conscience off guard and uh, to penetrate where cold facts, logic, and reason have failed or have been rebuffed by the listener. So that's what a parable is. And we come to Luke chapter 15. There's three parables here, and they were actually told successively without a break. And the, the intention was for them to build on the other. Oftentimes we take these parables one at a time, and that's okay. Uh, but we lose some of what um, was intended. Luke 15 says, All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So this gives us the context. This sets up why Jesus is about to tell these stories. If you don't ever remember anything else that I tell you today, I want you to remember this. Context is king. Um, you can grab any verse out of the Bible or out of any other text that you want to in, in an isolation. You can make it say what you want it to say. But if you keep it grounded in the context in which it was spoken, in which it was delivered, for which it was intended, then words mean things. They have one meaning, um, and you, you won't get lost. So the reason that Jesus is about to tell these stories is because the rabble, the... the, the uh, the forgotten, the scorned, the disdained, the sinners were flocking to Jesus. They were attracted by His message and they were coming to hear Him. And so the religious leaders who thought of these people that God had passed them over, God had no use for these people, their situations in life were God's judgment on them. They looked at this with disgust and disdain and made this comment, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them as if he was doing something contrary to what God would do. And so in their minds, in the minds of the religious leaders, God hated these people, so they should hate these people as well. So Jesus tells them a series of stories. So Jesus told them this parable. What man among you, remember that sentence, what man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. 
I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Or what woman, remember that phrase, or what woman who has 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. When she finds it, she calls her women friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Now, Jesus would have then immediately gone into the next parable, which I want to do, but Jesus' listeners had different ears than we do. Jesus was a first century Jew speaking to first century Jews. And so there was a certain cultural context that all of them understood that we are 21st century uh, Americans and we don't necessarily immediately hear the same things they heard. So one of my jobs then is to help transport us back to the first century so that we can hear what they heard. So in the first parable, I told you to pay attention. What man among you? So what Jesus is about to do is he's about to to grab hold of the attention of people in the audience and help them to relate to something. So now he's speaking to the men primarily. Men were the, the breadwinners in the home. They were the ones who, who uh, brought the, the, the money home literally to buy bread for that day. These were poor people. And, um, and so he's, he's about to, to speak to them. He says, you know, what man among you, if you have a hundred sheep and you lose one of them, you don't leave the 99 and go and search for the one that you've lost. So it, it, it's valuable. That one sheep is very valuable. It has great meaning to you. And so you go on this expedition. You leave everything else behind thinking about nothing but the lost sheep so that you can find it. Now, let me help you understand that in the 21st century. Um, man, you lose your ability to, to make a living for your family. And so you search desperately for a way to be able to bring money back into the home. So you can relate to how this first century uh, um, shepherd felt. Um, he lost part of his ability to, to earn money for his family. And so, the, so relate to the desperation that he feels. Then you are, you, uh, you've been unemployed for a while and you finally uh, find a, another job, another way to earn, uh, earn a living. And so now think about the joy that you feel. So that's what, that's what's trying, that's what Jesus is trying to relay here is what he's wanting the people to grasp. Understand the desperation and then understand the resultant joy when whatever has caused you the desperation is, is done away with. And then to the women. He says, Or what woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it. Now it would be helpful to understand what these ten silver coins were. Now I can't say this authoritatively because the text doesn't say it, but likely... What this was, and you've seen pictures of this, I'm sure, of, of women in um, Middle Eastern dressed in the first century. They would have necklaces that uh, were adorned with coins. And usually there would be ten of these coins, and they would wear them either as a headdress or a, as a necklace. And often these, these necklaces were given to them as gifts, and probably... This, this gift, this necklace was given to this woman either as a dowry from her father or as a wedding present from her husband. So let's assume it's the latter. Let's assume that this was given to her as a wedding present from her husband. So it has great sentimental value to her. A modern equivalent would be uh, perhaps your engagement ring. 
So ladies, think about how you might feel if you lost your engagement ring, particularly if it's a large one uh, and, and lots of carrots there, and, it's, and it's, it's lost somewhere in the house. Maybe you vacuumed it up. Maybe the dog ate it. Maybe your kid took it and buried it in the yard. I mean, who knows? It's missing, and so you search frantically and desperately. So think about, and this is what Jesus, this is the only point of this parable. This is what Jesus wants you to, to grab a hold of. Think about how you would feel, how desperate you would feel to find what you've lost. Then, you, you pull the refrigerator out, and it had dropped and rolled behind the refrigerator, and you find it. <laughs> and you're elated, you're excited, you found it, such that you call everybody you know. Man, I have found this thing that I lost. I found my wedding ring. This woman, I found this coin that had fallen out of its setting in this necklace. I'm excited about what has happened. Two familiar phrases in each of those parables. One for the men, it says, I tell you in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. So he's telling the men, all right, think about how you feel, how excited you were that you got your sheep back, how excited you are that you've gotten another job and, and can, can once again earn money for your family. That's how much excitement there is in heaven. When one, one of these people, and this is a rebuke against the religious leaders, the 99 people who don't need repentance, that's the Pharisees who are righteous in their own eyes and don't think that they're sinners and don't think that they need to repent. They're right. Obviously they're not, but they think that they're right. And so this is a rebuke against them. And Jesus is saying, you know what? There's more joy in heaven over this one person that you consider to be uh, uh, dirty and, and, and disgusted and, and rejected by God. There's more joy in heaven over him coming back than over you being here at all. And then in the second parable, uh, he says, uh, I tell you in the same way, there's joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. How many of you, um, especially if you grew up in church, have heard the expression, you know, when, 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 uh, when someone gets saved, that, that the, the angels are throwing a party, the angels are celebrating? How many of you have, have heard that before? Well, that's where this comes from. But I want to suggest to you that that's not exactly accurate in understanding what Jesus said here. What did he say? I tell you, in the same way, meaning the same way that the woman was excited that she found uh, the, the coin, and she was so excited, she called all her friends together to come over and celebrate with her. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. Who is in the presence of God's angels or in whose presence are God's angels? They're in the presence of God Himself. What I think Jesus is saying is that God Himself is celebrating over the one sinner who repents. This would have caused the Pharisees who were standing around at that point, to literally want to kill Jesus at that moment. Because in, in Jewish theology, much like large swaths of American Christianity, people think that, that uh, material blessing is a sign of God's favor on a person, and poverty is a sign of God's judgment on a person. Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, and so the Pharisees looked at these, at these people, the, 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 the refuse of society, the rabble, and, and looked at them as though they were under God's judgment. They deserved what lot they got in life because of some sin they had committed. Uh, and here Jesus 
uh, stands that on its head and says that God Himself celebrates that this lost soul has returned to Him. So building on that, then we come to the main parable, one that you're all familiar with, um, the, the, the prodigal son. He also said... A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his slaves, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put on a, a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So let's stop there before we get to the, the end of the parable because I want to do the same thing. I want to help you as a 21st century American hear what the first century Jew heard. Several things that we don't know about Jewish culture that, that bring a, a richness to the story when you understand it. The first one is this. That very much Jewish culture and first century culture uh, in general was, was built on respect. Everything was about respect. You respected the aged. You respected a, a person in a position of, of, of authority. And you especially, as a child, respected your parents. In fact, in the Old Testament, there was a, a provision in the Mosaic Law that if a child was particularly rebellious, that the elders of Israel would stone that child to death if the parent requested it. So imagine your child being so terrible that you ask the elders of, the, of, the, of, of Israel to stone your child to death. Well, as, the, as Jesus is telling the story, let me tell you what his listeners would have heard. A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. What they would have heard was this boy is disrespectful to his father. This boy wishes his father were dead. When do you get an inheritance? When someone dies. So for a, for a kid to say, I want what's coming to me. I want my inheritance. Essentially, he's saying to his father, I wish you were dead. I want what you have now. And so in the minds of the people that were listening, they would have been thinking, oh, this boy's going to get it. This is terrible. This is horrible. This is a horrible boy. And he deserves to be stoned to death by the elders. That's what they're thinking. And then Jesus says, so the father gave him what he asked for. Now, that would have been a shock to the people. They would have said, why on earth would he do that? He should have just slapped the boy and walked away from him. He should have disowned him. He should have, should have disowned him and, and called him no longer his son. But he, he gives him what he asked for. That doesn't make any sense. And then Jesus tells what the boy goes and does. And he goes and squanders all the money. And so the people would have thought, what a worthless human being. 
All that his father had worked and saved for his whole life, he goes and he squanders it in, in a matter of months on, on what? On nothing. So that would have built up further disdain for the boy. Then it says that the boy goes and hires himself out to a citizen of that country, meaning a non-Jew, meaning a Gentile. It was forbidden for Jews to even go into the house of a Gentile. Gentiles are unclean. They're godless pagans. And so a pious Jew was to have nothing to do with a Gentile. And so here this boy has hired himself out. He's become the servant of a Gentile. So some of the people I'm sure are thinking, "Mm mm-hmm, he's getting what he deserves. And then not only does he hire himself out to this Gentile, but he hires himself out to this Gentile to feed pigs. Pigs are the uncleanest of all unclean animals to, 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 to Jews. And, uh, and, and so the thought of such a thing would have been abhorrent. You, you don't go around them. You don't touch them. You don't look at them. You certainly don't feed them. And in fact, it was so bad, not only was he feeding them, he was living with them. He was covered in, in pig filth. He smelled like a pig. And he wanted to eat what the pigs were eaten, which would have been leftover, unclean food from the Gentiles. So the people are thinking, it doesn't get any worse than this. This this boy is under the judgment of God. This boy is getting exactly what he deserves. He deserves to die exactly where he is. That's what the people are thinking as Jesus is telling this story. And then... And I like the way it phrases it in the, in the King James, actually. It says, when he came to himself. Uh, in this translation, it, it just simply says, I'll get up and go to my father. So at some point, he realizes, you know what? I don't have to live this way. And he remembers an attribute about his father. He says, you know what? My father's servants live better than this, so I know what I'll do. I'll go home to my dad and I'll tell him, you know what, dad, I don't deserve to be your son and I'm not asking you to take me back as your, as your son. I have forfeited that right. That's what he's saying. I have forfeited my right to be called your son. I'm coming and simply asking you to, to take me back as a slave because your slaves live better than I do. That's what the boy is asking, uh, is going to ask of the father. And so the boy starts to head back towards home. Now this, what happens next would have absolutely, you would have heard gasps in the crowd as Jesus was telling the story. So Jesus says that the boy's coming home, and it says, while he was a long way off, the father recognized him. Now let me tell you what that tells me as a father. I can't imagine one of my children uh, being um, in in a state of uh, like this and being gone and away and and not knowing where they are and not knowing what they're doing and having been so disrespected by him and hurt by that and all the emotions that go along with that. But as a father, I can imagine every night praying for my son to, to repent and to come home. I can imagine as a father every night longing to see him. And so in my mind, and again, I can't say this authoritatively because the text doesn't say it, But I think it is reasonable as a father reading about a story about a father who's lost a son. I can imagine sitting on my porch every night. And and this is a wealthy man. And so imagine that he's got large fields and he's sitting on, this this is in southern Israel, he has a porch. He's sitting on his porch and he goes out in the evening to to maybe smoke his pipe and drink his lemonade or whatever they do. And, uh, and so he's sitting there on the porch, and I can imagine that he's looking out over the horizon thinking, I, I, I wish I could see my son. 
I wish I could see my son coming home. And he does this every night, I imagine, for however long the boy is gone. And then one night, one evening, as the sun is setting and the work is, is ending, he sees a figure come over the horizon. And, and I don't know. How does he know this is his kid? I don't know. Sometimes as a parent, maybe you hope or, or, or you know, or maybe he recognized his, the way he walked. Maybe he... Uh, maybe the kid had an afro when he saw it. I don't know. Somehow when he looked out over the horizon, he recognized, because the text says when he was a long way off, he recognized that this was his son. And then this is where the crowd would have been absolutely blown away because in their minds at this point, the people would have been thinking, boy, that boy's going to get it when he gets home. That father's gonna, just going to his, turn his back to him. And he deserves it. Well, instead, Jesus says the man gets up and let me read the exact words. Uh, while his son was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion. He ran. Something you need to know about Jewish aristocracy in the first century. They were very proper. Jewish men of standing did not run. They had servants to run for them. They didn't run. And so uh, for, for Jesus to say that this obviously wealthy man would have run to greet a son who had dishonored him in front of the entire community, would have blown their minds. Something else you need to know. Jewish men of high standing didn't show their legs. It was considered unseemly. Why didn't they show their legs? Because, remember, everybody wore tunics, and it's kind of hard to work in a tunic, and these men didn't work. But servants who worked would, would grab the, 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 the lower the hem, the rear hem of their tunic, pull it up between their legs and cinch it into their belt, effectively making trousers or shorts. You know, in the Scripture when it says to gird up your loins, that's what it's a reference to. It's a reference to taking, reaching down, grabbing the rear hem of your, of your, of your tunic, pulling it up, cinching it up between your legs, and tucking it in your belt so that you can work or, in this case, run. So this man, this Jewish aristocrat of high standing, obviously had to do that in order to run. So he's showing his legs and he's running towards a, a disrespectful son who dishonored him uh, in front of the entire community. So the people at this point are floored. They're like, what else can, can Jesus say that's going to totally blow our minds? Well, it turns out a lot. Um, he says, so the man ran to him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. Where did this boy just come from? Pig pen. He smells like a pig. He's disgusting. He's dirty. And this man runs to his son, throws his arms around him and kissed him. Why? Because he's, he's joyful to have him back. He's longed for his return. Now keep in mind, Jesus is painting a picture that he wants the people to see. And what they don't necessarily see at the moment, but will at the end, is that Jesus is painting a picture about their heavenly Father and their heavenly Father's feelings towards them and their heavenly Father's reaction to their coming to Him. So this, this Jewish man, he, he receives his son, he runs to him, he hugs him, he kisses him, and then he does some very uh, 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 important things. The son uh, repeats his rehearsed uh, confession, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his slaves, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. This is significant. 
What's the boy's clothing like? It's filthy rags. What's the scripture talk about us when we come to God with our own righteousness, clothed in our own righteousness? What's it like? Filthy rags, because we have no righteousness of our own. What, is, what are we told in Scripture that, that we receive from Christ? A righteousness that's not our own. In several places in Scripture, we're told to put on the righteousness of Christ. We put a robe of righteousness that's not ours that covers our own filth. What's this father doing? He's covering his son's filth. He's restoring him to the household. He's bringing him a robe that's clean, that's not a servant's robe, but a son's robe, and he's putting it on. He's covering his son's filth. Then he says, put a ring on his finger. That's extremely significant. In this day, communication was generally done by letter or parchment. And in order for someone to know that that the the person who sent it actually was the author of it, and that if it was confidential communication that it hadn't been compromised, they would seal it. They would they would write it, they would roll it up, they would take hot wax, melt it over it, and they would take a signet ring that contained a family crest and um, push it into the wax. So that when the recipient received the letter, they knew that it came from this person who, who, who the letter said it was from and that the, the communication had been compromised. But what did, that, what did that ring signify? It signified authority. So what the father was doing, in this instance, he was saying, okay, I'm covering your filth, your, 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 your filth with a clean robe. I'm covering your unrighteousness with, with a righteousness that's given to you. And... I'm restoring your position or I'm giving you authority. You have, you have, what's, your, what's mine is yours. Because if the son's wearing the ring, then he has the authority of the father. He had it before he left. He gave it up when he left. The father's returning it to him. So he's covering his filth. He's restoring his authority. And then he gives him shoes. He says, put sandals on his feet. This is also significant. Because slaves didn't wear shoes. Slaves went barefoot. The owner and the owner's family wore shoes. Their feet didn't touch the ground. So the father is saying no in no uncertain terms. I'm not accepting you back as a servant. I am restoring you as my son. So the father did three very significant things here. And in each of these, the people would have been totally blown away. Because in their mind, all they could think about was this boy dishonored you. He publicly humiliated you. He went and hired himself out to Gentiles. He ate and slept with pigs and he smells like a pig now. But you're completely restoring him to everything that he had before. And then the father kills the fattened calf and celebrates with a feast. And he says, because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now at this point, remember, there's a large crowd of... of, um, Peasants and tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and everybody that was the, the um, reject of society. 
They were all they were the ones who were coming and listening to Jesus. Say that so they were all gathered around. But standing off over here were the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders who were at this point furious and and they were scoffing and scorning and and uh, they couldn't believe. We heard at the beginning that Jesus was even letting these people be close to him. And now Jesus is telling them the stories that says God Himself is pleased that these people have returned to Him, have come to Him. And so Jesus now, in a stern rebuke to them, concludes the parable. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants and asked what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I've been slaving many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So what Jesus has done here brilliantly is to lay bare the heart of God. The heart of God was for sinners to repent. The heart of God was for those who were far off to come home. That's what God's heart is for us. Um, God desires to find us like the man who lost the sheep, like the woman who lost the coin. He, sent the, he sends the Holy Spirit out to, to, to call people to Himself. He sent His Son to search for and to die for the lost. And then He Himself rejoices when the lost is found. 